Hebrews chapter 1, and I prayed about this, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know if we're going to get through the entire uh, lesson tonight, because we're going to be looking at seven, the seven excellencies of Jesus Christ, seven excellencies of Jesus Christ, and each one of these excellencies we could spend 10 years talking about. So um, I told Sister April I had seven points, and each one of them I got 30 minutes for. So uh, we're real thankful the Lord has given us comfortable seats. So, <laughs> But the seven excellencies of Jesus Christ. So look at Hebrews chapter 1. We're still in the introduction, so you really don't even need your outline yet. Uh, our, our outline doesn't even kick in until we start getting to verse 4. But look at chapter 1, verse 1. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come again. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy, forgiving us of our sins, purging our sins, drawing us to you in your sweet salvation and all of your love that you give us day by day, Father, we know that, that you are faithful. And Father, just what a, an amazing uh, salvation that we get to look into your eternal word and we get to just glean from it, grow by your words. Father, we do pray that you bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. There's an unencredited person who wrote this about Jesus. I'm going to read this. Jesus Christ came from the bosom of the Father to the bosom of a woman. He became the Son of Man that we might become the sons of God. He was born contrary to the laws of nature, lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity. He had no wealth or influence and had neither training nor education in the world's schools. His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential. His in infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the world could not hold the books about him. He never wrote a song. Yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all songwriters together. He never founded a college, yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many students as he has. He never practiced medicine, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors have healed broken bodies. This Jesus Christ is the star of astronomy, the rock of geology, the lion and the lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords, and the healer of all diseases. Throughout history, men have come and gone, yet he lives. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. And when he returns, nothing 
will stop him. Oh, I love that. I, I love it. And that's what really is going to set the mood for what we're going to see tonight in chapter 1. Remember what Hebrews was about. Hebrews was written to the Hebrews to stop being Hebrews, right? So it was a Hebrew writing Hebrews to stop adhering to the law and look full upon Jesus. Receive him fully as the complete work of God. He is the complete, complete work of all salvation. And really, verse 1, we saw that what God said in the past about Jesus, about his son, the, all the Old Testament, 4,000 years had pointed towards Christ. And in different ways he did this. We saw the progressive revelation of, you can start in Genesis 1-1, and when you completely finish in Revelation, you see the progression of revelation. You see special revelation that God is giving information all throughout the years about his son. But in these last days, is what it says, in these last days since Jesus came, he's, God is done speaking that Jesus is God's final word. That Jesus is the fulfillment and the final work. And so in verse 2, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this, and I'm, and I'm going to, within these seven excellencies of Jesus Christ that it describes here, and this is, like I said, this may be a part one and part two. Each one of these, we're going to look at the perspective of what a Jew may see. Remember, this is, this is the writer of Hebrews presenting Jesus to those who are being persecuted there in Jerusalem, the Hebrews, the Jews, and he is presenting Jesus as these things, these qualities. And so um, one of the things that is first, you know, it's not going to be a, a complete sermon on uh, what's called Christology or Christology. It's not, we don't have enough time to look at all the beautiful attributes of Jesus. But we're going to start in verse 2, and it says, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Now, that's the first thing we see here, that God has appointed Jesus to be heir of all things. That means all things that God possesses, Jesus possesses. God has given all things to his son. In Psalm 2, that's, it's a great psalm for the kingship of Jesus, but in Psalm 2, Verse 6, it says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Now, imagine you're a Jew reading this. One of the things that, and I'll just as a sidebar, to understand Hebrews appropriately is to understand the Old Testament, is to understand the laws and Leviticus. And so some of the, like I, I read after John Gill, John Gill is a master of Hebrew history, the customs, the traditions, and everything Jewish. Now, the lot, what I'll do throughout here is I will bring up Old Testament situations and but just to let you know we may be going to Leviticus or we may be going into the book of the laws because again we want to put on the lens of the Jew here now is this for us absolutely is this for the Gentiles yes 
It wasn't written to the Gentiles, but it is for the Gentiles. It's for, it's for everybody. But to appreciate this, um, it is to put on the lens of a Jew. Now, to a Jew, who was an heir? Now, remember, we, we ran into this with Jacob and Esau. Remember what Esau did, how he sold his birthright? An heir had the birthright, and he had the blessing. Now, he is the firstborn. Now, Jesus, we know, was not, we know that Jesus did not come into the world at his birth. He existed before his birth. He's eternal, and actually, he's getting ready to clarify that in the next few words, because he doesn't want anybody to be under the impression that Jesus came into the world and he's the heir. Uh, because he just came into the world. But to the Jew, the one who had the birthright had the double portion of blessings and they had uh, the birthright. But these would be more for the legal rights. And that's what he's saying as a firstborn. Uh, in Psalm 89, he says, Also, I will make him my firstborn, Higher than the kings of the earth, my mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. And so when he's talking, it's a messianic psalm, and it's talking about Jesus, and he's talking about his firstborn, it's talking about from the legal situation. It is his, it is the firstborn, is the only begotten of God. Now, the heir... We see here, not only did Jesus, and we will be turning to Colossians chapter 1 here in a little while, but uh, in Colossians chapter 1, it says that Jesus not only made all things, but all things were for him. Not only were they made by him, but they were made for him. When Jesus came, we know to the earth, the first time he came, uh, he owned very little or nothing at all. Remember when Jesus came, he, he came as a servant. He came as a suffering servant. He didn't come as the, you know, the anointed heir of all things. And he came, and we know in 2 Corinthians, my favorite, chapter 8, uh, though he was rich, yet he became poor, that through his poverty we may be rich. And it also says that he didn't have a pillow. He had nowhere to lay his head in Luke chapter 9. Even the clothes that he had were torn off of him at the crucifixion, and they cast lots for him. And he was buried in a borrowed grave. And so he didn't have a lot of ownership. But when he returns the second time, he is coming back as the king of kings. He's the king of kings now, but he's coming back as the heir of all things. He possesses all things. And so he is going to claim everything. If you think about the parable of the, the husbandman, how the Lord of the vineyard had, had rented it out to the husbandman, and how he had sent people to collect the fruit from the vineyard. And the, the husbandman, the evil husbandman, the, the ones who were taking care of it, uh, beat and killed the people that the Lord of the place had sent. And then the Lord said, well, I will send my heir. Surely they'll receive my heir. And then as the heir came to the land, what did they say amongst themselves? Here comes the heir. Let us kill the heir so that way we inherit everything. And so they killed the heir. And Jesus says, what do you think is going to happen when the Lord returns to his land? He says, well, they'll be utterly destroyed. And that is Jesus. When he comes back, 
He's coming back as Lord over all things. And he's coming back in ownership, and he's coming back and there will be consequence. And so to the Jew, what is significant about him being the heir of all things it means is he is the possessor of all things. Jesus is the possessor of all things. But his excellency is also as the creator. He says, by whom also he made the world. So like I said, it's interesting that he throws this right in right here because I think this is a point of clarity. A point of clarity that Jesus has always existed as God. Jesus was the second person of the Godhead. And so to the Jew, when they read this, that means that the Messiah emphatically was eternal in pre-existence as creator God. Now, if you turn back to Colossians chapter 1, we're going to look at that. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, we could really start at verse 1, but let's start at verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Who? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. In John chapter 1, it, it refers to him as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him, any, uh, was nothing made, uh, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, also, at the end of verse 2, if you're back in Hebrews, did you notice that the worlds is plural there? It says that he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds. Now, that word worlds in the Greek, it's not the common word used for world, cosmos. It's actually ionis. And what that typically translates to is ages, or it's a cycle of time. Now, you can read it this way, uh, that one view is that he had made the, all the time, the past, the present, the future. He has made all the ages, all the world. But John Gill has an interesting uh, word here about this. The phrase, the world, was a Jewish way of speaking. It was an idiom. It was a Jewish idiom. And their writings and their prayer books will all mention world and call God the Lord of all the worlds. To the Jew, there was the upper world. This was the habitation of God. There was the middle world. That is the air. And there's a lower world, which is the earth. There's the world of orbs, which is the sun, the moon, and the, where the stars are. There's the world of angels. Uh, so to the Jew, and this I believe, 
and I, I'm starting to kind of lean in this direction in verse 2, they would have known what that meant. He made the worlds. Jesus made the worlds. And so he made all things. Now, it also says that uh, these that God made by his son, not as an instrument, but as the efficient cause with him. Now, it, it says that by whom also he made the world, it's not that God used Jesus to make the world, is they both made the world. All three made the world. And that puts us back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That word God is Elohim. And Elohim is plural. It's a possessive, it's a personal plural. So uh, first person plural, us. It means us. And what did they do? They created. So this plural, this us, did one single action. It's called plurality and unity. Elohim means plurality in unity. So there was the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal. Um, and all three had created the heaven and the earth. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, And God, Elohim, said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Here, keep your thumbs here, or fingers. I don't know if you're going to churn without your thumbs, but go to Deuteronomy. Uh, I want you to see something. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Now, this is a very uh, you know, popular verse. But I want you to see something with this popular verse. And I don't know if you write notes, but it, this is very interesting. He says, chapter 6, verse 4 in Deuteronomy, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, that word God, in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Elohim. That's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's the plural. But is one Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh is singular. Isn't that something? So the Lord our God, Elohim, the plural, the Godhead, is one Yahweh. He's one God. And I, I think that that's just a beautiful place to go. And if you ever kind of just bookmark that in your mind, um, that will explain a lot right there. Now, I really want to get into all of my neat creation facts um, about how God had created, how Jesus had created the world. Um, I don't know if I have enough time, but um, okay, you know what, I, I, I can't, I'm, I, I've got to. I love creation, I, I, and I've done creation classes, but 
the vastness of our universe is just, if, I don't know if it thrills your heart. I hope it does. It just thrills your heart to see how big God made everything. I mean, he made it big. If you were to pop open the sun, you were to open up the sun, you can fit 1.3 million earths inside the sun. 1.3 million earths inside the sun. All right, so now let's take the sun and let's scale it down to the period that you see in your Bible. There's a period at the end of the sentence, wherever that sentence is. Okay, that period represents our sun. Now, about this far from that period is Venus. About that far is Jupiter. About that far is Saturn. And about that far is Pluto. Now, to our next star, Alpha Centauri A, it is 50 miles from here. It is 50 miles from your period. If Pluto is that far from the sun, think about 50 miles from here. That's how far the closest, it is 4.2 light years away. Light travels 186,000 miles per second. Light can travel around the equator seven and a half times in one second. Light can travel to the moon in 1.5 seconds. How far does it take to get to Pluto? It takes four hours to get to Pluto. How far does it take to get to our closest star? Four and a half years. I mean, it, it, if you were to start walking right now, it would take you 28 years to walk to the moon. But light gets there in 1.5 seconds. And just think about the vastness, the hugeness of space. Now, Alpha Centauri A is in our Milky Way galaxy. Now, imagine now the sun, the moon, the, the Jupiter, New, Neptune, all of those things, it's called a solar system. There are millions of solar systems in the galaxy. There is estimated to be 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. We all live in the Milky Way galaxy. How, guess how many galaxies there are? Two trillion. Two trillion galaxies. And who made all that? Who made in the, just the most minute detail of our lives? Who, who made gravity? Who made all of the, the, the planetary orbits and all of the laws? Jesus. He made the worlds. He made the upper world, the middle world, the lower world, however you want to look at world. He made it all. And by, through him, all things consist. And it is just, it always baffles me. Um, I don't know if you all like physics. I love watching physics. I love watching, you know, how Newton discovered this and how Einstein did that and, and everything. But it's always, it, it's always by people who don't believe God. <laughs> it seems like that there are so many atheists, and it's just perplexing. Uh, April has some flowers on the side of the house, and I was watching these bumblebees just going from this flower to this flower, this flower, this flower, and this one was red, this was a red flower, this was a yellow flower, and I was like, there they are. They're doing what they need to do. You know, but if I were to ask that bumblebee what color that flower is, he couldn't tell me. But God has designed them to do exactly what they're doing. 
with no concept of what they're doing. God has designed all things. How could that be an accident? How could any of this, any of that be an accident? And just the smallest of things to the largest of things. Oh, he's, well, I can't wait to see heaven. I don't know about you all. I mean, I, I can wait for a little while longer, but uh, I, I, heaven, I, I couldn't imagine the, the glory of heaven. Um, mother told me that God made earth in six days. All the glory and the splendor that you see, he only made in six days. But when he ascended up in the heaven, he goes, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's been 6,000 years. Oh, I couldn't imagine just heaven, the, the things that we'll see there. But we see that it is by him and for him. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. That means the stars. When, when, when you walk out tonight and you look up, the, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the stars show his handiwork. Well, he made the world at the end of verse 2. And it says, now he goes on to present him as the brightness of his glory. Jesus is the brightness of his glory. Now, that word in the Greek, um, apalgasma, I know it's, it's kind of a strange word, but what it means is radiance or effulgence. I don't know if you all ever heard that word, the effulgence. Now, the term effulgence is, the, is brightness taken to an extreme. You may be dazzled by it, stunned by it, or even overcome by its brightness, but it typically refers to the sun's sunbeams, the sun rays. And actually, this word, who being the brightness of his glory, in some places they translate that as being the rays, being the, the, the light, the rays, the sun rays of his glory. Now, when it, we knowing that it does that, if you look at the sun and the sunbeams and the effulgence of the sun, you have to have both together. Now think about this. The sunbeams that come out, the sun rays, both have to exist for both to be there. You have to have a sun before you can have the beam. You have to have the beam in order to have a sun. A sun that does not have brightness is called a dead star. It's a dead star. So if there's sun, there's got to be sun rays, sun beams. So both must exist, but yet they're distinct from each other. The same thing with God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They all coexist. They, they all exist. They're one, but yet they're distinct in their persons. So he is the brightness of God's glory. He is the very effulgence. Now, Jesus himself is also light. Now, when it talks about the brightness of his glory, to a Jew, what glory is he talking about? He's talking about his Shekinah glory, where God would come and he would meet with Israel in the tabernacle in his Shekinah glory, or that he would lead them by day and by night a pillar of uh, fire, a cloud by day. When God would be in the presence of Israel, they called it his Shekinah glory. And here, Paul, or whoever the writer of Hebrews is, is presenting Jesus as 
the very brightness, the very existence of God's glory. So John 1.14 says, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus' light, Jesus is light. We see Jesus call himself the light many times. His being is light. But his light does many things. It shows God's glory. It showed everybody's God's glory. And it also transmits his light in us. In John 12, 36, he says, While we have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. If you are a believer, today you are a child of light. That's something? Um, but we know the tragedy is most men reject him. And we see that. We see why men reject him, because they prefer darkness over light, lest their deeds be reproved. They hateth the light, those that hateth the light. And, and Paul said this in 2 Corinthians, he says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And when we turn to him in repentance and in humble faith, when we receive him, we believe in him, we ask him to save us, and he saves us, and he has mercy on us, we become the, ch the children of light, and you know what will happen? Is you will behold the glory of God through Jesus. You will see things that you've not seen. You'll know things that you didn't know before. You'll have peace that you didn't have before. Because you will see the glory of God in Jesus. You will see the brightness of his glory, his Shekinah glory. But the next excellency we see is that Jesus is also the express image of his person. Now, the express image is one Greek word, and you all may recognize it, but it's character. It's where we get character. Jesus is the express image of his person, is his character. That means the exact image of anything or anyone. It's a precise production. In Colossians 1.15, we already read this verse. We don't have to go back there. But he says that who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. That word image that he uses there is akon, which is used for impressions made by a die or a stamp on a seal. Jesus is the perfect personal imprint of God in time and space. He is the perfect imprint of God. That's what it means, his express image. Uh, we know that man originally was created in the image of God. Now, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, but that doesn't mean that his, the image of God that he created man and, and woman or man that it was meant flesh and blood. There were ways, there was characteristics of man that were in the image of God. These are the rationale. Rationale is reasoning, choice, judgment. God gave um, man and woman free agency and he gave him rulership. He gave him dominion over the earth. There's no other creature of God that has rationale, has judgment, has the ability to, to make decisions. Um, this reflected God's free agency. This reflected, so the 
image of God in that regard reflected God and who he is. There was also, he was in the image of God in morality. God created Adam and Eve righteous. They weren't just innocents. They had a bend towards righteousness. Now, we know they sinned, and they lost that, right? But when God created them, they were righteous, thus reflecting God's holiness. And in his image also in fellowship. Adam and Eve had fellowship with God. And that was also the image of God, that he has fellowship with the Trinity, the triune, but also uh, it also reflected his glory. But in Genesis chapter 3, men fell, and they marred that image. Yeah, we're in the image of God, but it's marred. We don't have the holiness. We don't have the fellowship. All of those things were gone. Now, we still have the rationale. We still have the ability to make decisions, the agency that we have. But who were we, when it talked about generations and numbers and everything like that, and it said that Adam had a son, and his son was in Adam's image. We are more in Adam's image. We, when, when you were born, you were born to a human mother and a human dad, and we know that there's total depravity. So we were born in Adam's image being totally depraved and separated from God. Now, what is being born again? Being born again is being born again into Jesus' image. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the express image of God. Jesus did not squander the image of God. You know, when sin entered the world, God's glory was marred. We don't see God's glory as much as God is glorious. Until Jesus came, and they beheld Jesus' glory, because Jesus was perfect. He did all things. He's God himself, and he's the express image, as we just saw. He's the image of God. And just what a sight it would have been to behold him. But Jesus, and in contrast, he did not tarnish the image of God. Um, in John 14, 9, Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? He is the express image of the Father. He's the image bearer, and he's God himself. You've seen him, you've seen the Father. And that's what this is in verse 3. He is the express image of his person. And it's, and it's a beautiful. Now, to the Jews, now think about this. To the Jews, they were a peculiar bunch of people. Now, all across the planet, all the nations, all the religions, all the, the customs, all of the, the, the places of the earth, all of them had images, graven images. They all had gods that they worshipped. They had graven images and, you know, worshiped the God, whoever it was. Not the Jews. Why? They were forbidden by God to produce any graven image or any likeness to bow down to worship it. And, and that's in Nehemiah 
9, I'm sorry, no, it's not. It's, it's in Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. God already has an image. Think about that. God already has an image. You don't want to make one when he's already got one. Who's his image? Jesus Christ. That's his image. He is the express image and the likeness of God. His excellency. Now, uh, I may wait till Sunday or or next Wednesday to to give you the the last, uh, that was number four, to give you the last three. But I'll give you the, the three now. But look at this. Not only is he the express image of his person, verse 3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. He is, his excellency is in his administration. And then when he had by himself purged our sins, and his excellency is in his sacrifice, when he had purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And he, his excellency, is in his exaltation. And we will stop there for tonight. And I'll pray about it. Actually, I was thinking about bringing this Sunday because look at these last three. These last three are are amazing. And I'm going to need some more time on these last three, especially when he gets to purged our sins because we're going to see what does the Jew think about that. Now, remember... This book was written to Hebrews. What have they thought so far? Go home and and think about that. Meditate on that. When Hebrews was written, here they're presenting to the Hebrews, here's Jesus. Here's Jesus. He's the fulfillment. And remember the whole book is about how Jesus is better. In chapters 1 through 7, it is the person of Jesus Christ. In chapters 8 through 10, it is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And in chapters uh, 10 through 13, it is knowing the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Let us lay hold on him. Let's endure in faith. No matter what persecution may happen, whatever happens to you in your life, it should not shake you. It should not rattle you from the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's better. He's better. He says, let us shake those things that so easily beset us. Let's just set them aside. And let us look to the author and finisher of our faith. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, once again for your your word and all your blessings to us. Father, thank you for the promises that are fulfilled in Jesus. Thank you, Father, for sending him to the cross to pay for my sins, that I may look upon him and be saved, and be redeemed. And Father, one day be called up in the glory to be with you. Father, thank you for your grace. We do pray for those who we mentioned on the prayer list. We pray for those who who are lost. Father, you know each heart. Father, we, we pray, Lord, that you'll just have grace and pity upon them and save them. Father, we love you, and we thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. That's all.